my mum was such a big character, very bubbly. There was never a dull moment, let's put it that way. So I'm very, very, very lucky to have had, um, you know, the mum that I did. And even though I only had her for 14 years, um, you know, she's taught me so many things that will last a lifetime. It was January 2018 and Cheryl Gabriel Hooper was arriving home with her 14-year-old daughter, Georgia. She had recently left her abusive husband, who had secretly attached a tracker to her car and was stalking her. He turned up to our address and pulled on, uh, pulled behind us, blocking us on the drive just as we arrived, um, at which point he got out of the car um, and started banging on the driver's side window with um, what I believed was a piece of scaffolding or a spade. Got out of the car and I just thought, if I can move him out the way of the car... Um, then at least my mum can get out because she was trapped at this point. Um, but before I even had a chance to get to him to try and move him, um, he had shot through the, the window um, and he shot my mum twice with a 12-bore shotgun. Georgia witnessed her mum's brutal murder by her stepfather, who had a previous conviction after breaking into his ex-partner's house with a knife and threatening to kill her. She's trying to bring meaning to her loss and campaigning for repeat domestic abusers or stalkers to be put on a national register where they'd be monitored more closely. I completely uh, believe that my mum would still be alive if it was, if it was, you know, that register was here. Um, you know, he did have a previous conviction um, against a previous partner and he should have been monitored more closely after that. Uh, the fact that he was allowed to still have a shotgun licence um, is is confusing to me. We have a sex offenders register. Um, why don't we have a domestic abuse register? Uh, we know it's just as deadly and damaging as um, sex offences are. In the aftermath of a murder through domestic violence, all too often a pattern of violent and disturbing behaviour emerges of multiple victims over time with little oversight to protect them. Supporters of the register say that a coordinated approach and proper monitoring is desperately needed to allow a full picture to be known before rather than after someone is killed. The landmark domestic abuse bill is back in the Commons today after changes were made to it in the Lords. The government has agreed to 86 of the 98 proposed changes, but crucially, the proposed register and that monitoring that Georgia and so many others want through the national system mapper is not one of them. The government say they'll issue a new strategy to manage abusers in a year. The government believes that creating a new mapper category for high-harm domestic abuse and stalking perpetrators would bring in added complexity to the MAPA framework without compensating benefits. The Criminal Justice Act 2003 already provides for serial and high-harm offenders to be managed under MAPA. The real issue is not, therefore, the statutory framework, but how it is applied in practice. I think it's hugely disappointing. They've tabled an amendment in lieu of ours, which is just saying, well, we're just strengthening guidance. And that's just not acceptable. It's a back step, quite frankly. I've worked with families bereaved. I've reviewed case after case where the lessons to be learned are that it's a pattern of behaviour, where perpetrators don't just wake up one day and kill. We want to make sure that these violent men are visible and accountable and responsible. The domestic abuse bill brings hope to those at risk, but the voting down today of the proposed register means the battle for campaigners like Georgia goes on, not just to protect others like her mum, but in her words, to make her death not be for nothing. Hey there, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the final episode with my very special guest, 
17-year-old Georgia Gabriel Hooper. Now, you just heard a clip of Georgia and I being interviewed about our campaign by Channel 4's Anya Pop. And you heard Minister Victoria Atkins say that adding a new category of serial domestic abusers and stalkers to MAPA, the multi-agency public protection arrangements, I call the new category Category 4, would add complexity in inverted commas. Well, since then, there's been a lot of back and forth and a lack of clarity about whether serial and high-harm domestic abusers and stalkers would automatically be included under Category 3 of MAPA, which is what I've been campaigning for. Well, there have been numerous articles published in the Times newspaper saying that they would be included just before the domestic abuse bill was to return to the House of Commons on April the 26th and the House of Lords on April the 27th, once more before receiving royal assent within days. However, after pinning down Baroness Susan Williams in the House of Lords on April the 27th, this turns out not to be the case. I am extremely disappointed, a complete understatement, and I know many victims, survivors and campaigners are too. And I'm going to say more about this in a separate episode because I'm recording this on the fly on my baby moon when I'm not really supposed to be working, but of course I've been working across this whole time. But I wanted you to know the latest update as soon as possible. It is worth highlighting that we have made some significant gains due to the campaign, including a new multi-agency public protection database for offenders, new statutory guidance that will be developed hopefully in consultation with myself and other experts, which will make it clear that those with past patterns of behaviour must be assessed for consideration at MAPA Category 3, as well as 25 million being invested into holding perpetrators to account, along with all the awareness raising of all the failures, evidencing that we need urgent change. Having said that, though, It's not exactly what we wanted or needed in the wake of Sarah Everard's murder and so many others, including Cheryl Gabriel Hooper. It is worth highlighting that since Sarah Everard's murder on March the 3rd, 22 women have been killed by men, a statistic from my colleague Karen Ingela-Smith's Counting Dead Women project. This is utterly heartbreaking and terrific, and many of these cases are preventable. This is not the end of the campaign, and I'll explain more in a separate episode, as I don't want to go into all the detail here ahead of Georgia's final episode, but know that we aren't stopping. I, we, the campaigners, victims, survivors, families, we're committed to keeping women safe, making violent and abusive men visible, and holding them to account. Why? Because women and children's lives matter. And so we're going to jump back into the final episode of my interview with Georgia, which really illustrates exactly why this is so important and why it should matter to everyone. And once again, listener discretion is advised as the content may be triggering or distressing. Tell us a little bit about what happened when you and your mum pulled into your driveway. Yeah, so my mum had been out at a pub. Um, <clears throat> she would never go to that pub. Um, it was out of area. It was, you know, a good half an hour away. There's no way she would... She, she probably hadn't been there for a good 20 years. So there's, there's no way she would... He could find her there. Um, and he turned up there. And, you know, I, I got a call. I wasn't there with her. I was at a friend's house um, just saying, oh, you know, I think he's trapped the car. And that was sort of when the penny dropped. Oh, he took the car. Oh, 
he's put a tracker on it um you know uh, i think he actually admitted it um but it was it was really concerning because we didn't know where the tracker was so we couldn't just chuck it off and anyway it was too late he knew we were going home he knew where we lived you know there was no stopping it at this point um but yeah so my mum came pick me up and we were driving home um it was only 10 minutes to get home from our friend's house to ours it was very um it's the strangest drive I've ever been on in my life um for the simple reason that we just didn't have a clue what was going on and we knew we were being tracked it was really strange knowing he knew exactly where we were at that moment in time um and because the um Range Rover Evoque has uh, like GPS um abilities and you can put like a tracker on it anyway in case it gets stolen we weren't sure if that was the built-in gps that he'd had um set up and he we weren't sure if he'd said my wife has run off with my car can you track it for me or whether he bought one and stuck it on or we 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 didn't know what to do so we were kind of looking at this box in the roof going is that it you know what's going on um and I kept saying to my mum, let me call the police now. I'm concerned. I want to call the police now because at least we can log it because it's not appropriate behaviour. And no, no, I'll call them in the morning. And I just turned to my mum and I said, yeah, but you won't call them in the morning, will you? And she just kind of sat there in silence for five minutes because she knew I was right. Um, and then she was like, well, I'll call them when we get in then. And I kind of took the deal because I was like, okay, well, she's never going to let me call them now. I'd already asked a million times, can I call them? Um, And, you know, I knew that at least if she did it when we got in, I'd be there and I'd be there. I'd be there to witness it. And I'd know she had called the police um, and made made them aware of what had happened. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, we never got that chance um, as we pulled upon the drive. He came out of nowhere. He he hadn't been following us before, um, so I don't quite know when he joined on or whether he was sat waiting around the corner on the estate for us. Um, but he pulled up just sort of after we pulled on the drive um, and he blocked us in, so there was no way my mum could move her car. Um, it was kind of, well, we're stuck in this now. We've got to find a way out of this. Um, and we didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, I wasn't aware of what had happened really until she turned around and just went, oh my God, he's here. Um, and, you know, that was sort of the last thing I ever really remember her saying to me. And it's, it's quite a distinct final sentence, actually. Um, you know, oh my God, he's here. It's, it's, and that, that was a very fearful, um, in a fearful way, way too. Um, and I just said, look, don't worry, I'm going to get out and I'm going to call the police. Um, I tore my Achilles tendon at this point. So I was in a medical boot, you know, in a big cast. Um, I couldn't walk. I was on crutches. I'd already been on crutches for a couple of months. Um, there was no sign of me coming off anytime soon. Um, so I have no idea how I did it. Well, probably adrenaline, but I got out of the car and I, I walked and ran on that foot. Um, and if I hadn't got out of the car, I possibly would have been left with, you know, severe injuries or even be dead um but he'd started banging on the window um with some object and because it was it was after 11 o'clock at night the interior light was on in the car as you know that makes it even more difficult to see out um and there was a street light behind him so all i could really see was a silhouette um with just some long thing in his hand um and it was as he was sort of trying to break the window, which he then figured out didn't work. So I dived out the car in this point and my 
thumbprint on my iPhone wasn't working. Then I couldn't put the passcode in. It just wasn't, everything was going wrong. So I couldn't actually call the police quick enough. Uh, I mean, they'd never have got there quick enough, but I couldn't call the police. Um, and possibly it might have possibly saved my life. Um, you know, if he'd have seen me on the phone to the police, he might have gone, actually, I'm going to stop this and try to kill me too. Um, but that's you know that's another matter that's again that's speculation um i'd got to the sort of registration front reg plate um area of the car probably a little bit closer to him um all that was going through my head was if i get out i get him away from the car door mum can get out because at that moment in time she was trapped in the car so she couldn't open the door so i thought if i can get her get him away from the door at least she can get out and then she can run and then we'll cross that bridge when we get to it um so but I never got a chance to get there. Um, he then decided he couldn't break the glass with the barrel of the gun. So he shot through. And it was only then that I realised he had a gun. Because um, I, I was, thought he might have had some scaffolding or a shovel. I couldn't really work out what it was. Um, and he shot through the glass. Uh, the first shot um, took out my mum's tricep muscle, right tricep, um, and went into her chest, um, which... She may have survived um, if it had just been that shot. Um, she would have had, you know, severe disabilities with her right arm, um, you know, and probably lung problems too for quite a significant period of time. Um, however, she probably would have survived. Um, but then, you know, that wasn't enough for him. Um, and that was sort of when he mounted the gun properly, um, well, as much as he could because there was no stock on it. Um, and, you know... It, even from up from where I was standing and even with that split second of time, you could just see how callous his look was and how malicious, you know, he was. He meant it. It wasn't an accident. Um, you know, and he he fired the second shot and that went um that went in through sort of the clavicle area, um, into the neck, uh, severed the spinal cord, um tore, tore the arteries, um, you know, everything you can possibly think of, really. Um, and I believe it sort of exited in the left armpit area. Um, however, you know, I'm not entirely certain. Um, but, yeah, and that was sort of the final... Um, yeah, that was the shot that killed her, really, and there was no coming back from that. Um, she had an error. The paramedics managed to get a heart going again, I think, um, but as in like activity um but she had an air embolism then because of the um puncture to the artery so obviously that um you know that was isn't there isn't really any coming back from that um i mean i knew straight away she was gone um i'd been around guns since i was seven you know after you've been around guns for that long i was 14 at the time you know it's been quite a long period of time you know that something f doesn't get shot from that range and survive be that human be that elephant you know cow anything you, you don't get shot by a shotgun from that range and survive um and so i wasn't really concerned with that sort of in the moment i wasn't really concerned with that i was just like do you know what yep she's gone let's just deal with everything else so he decided to just walk off um I everyone thinks I'm a bit crazy, but I chased after him. Um, instead of running away, I ran toward, um, which isn't the normal um, sort of plan, really. Um, and I just wanted to know why. I just kept asking him why, because um, I was just confused. It's like, why? What? What on earth could have possibly driven you to do this? Um, why did you feel the need to take someone's life? Um, 
And he obviously didn't really want to speak to me. Um, he just got in his car and his plan was to then go and kill himself. Um, and I was stood in front of his car. I was banging on the front of his Land Rover, just trying to get him to talk to me, but he wouldn't. Um, and then something in the back of my mind was just like, move, just move, because you're not going to, you know, you're going to get hit if you're not careful. Um, and I was I was very close to being run over. You know, he wheel span off as quick as he could. And, you know, fortunately I did move otherwise, because he at that point he didn't care he wouldn't have thought anything of running me over. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a good job I moved. Um, and then, I, you know, I went back to my mum and I, I just thought, okay, I know she's already gone um, because I, you know, I, I know that. Um, I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but I do need to check for a pulse. I do need to check, is there any sort of response? Um, so, um, you know, I did. And straight away, no pulse, no nothing. So again, that just confirmed what I already knew. Um, and at this point, one of the neighbours had come out and uh, pulled me into his house, basically, bless him. Um, and yeah, he sort of took it from there. He called the police. Um, that was when I went hysterical. Um, I just I kept running up and down his stairs, and he, him, and his um, you know his partner were like, "What on earth are you doing, running up and down the stairs?" And that was when I just started the panic set in because I'd been um, quite calm and very much autopilot. Right, I need to do this. Right, I need to do that. I need to check for pulse. I need to do this. Um, and then obviously, as soon as someone t- else takes over, I didn't need to do that anymore. Um, so you know, panic set in really. But um, the police, you know, he called the police and the ambulance. They arrived as fast as they possibly could. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of questions to ask me. Um, I was able to answer most of them, I'd say. Um, and I, I calmed down fairly quickly, but I went um, through cycles of going hysterical. And, oh, I need to, I'm going to pass out because I was, <clears throat> they made me stay in his house because um, our drive overlapped the front of the neighbor's house. Um, so if I'd gone out the front, I'd have been right where the paramedics were working on my mum. And then they did take me out the back, but everyone had come to their windows at this point because it was, you know, blue flashing lights up and down the street, police cord and all that. So everyone was like, what the hell's going on? They'd obviously heard the bangs and me screaming. Um, so everyone was starting to get really concerned. Um, and I couldn't be stood outside because in case someone heard what I said, um, which didn't help to calm me down because I was like, oh, well, well, I'm too hot in here. I'm going to pass out, you know. Um, but I would go through cycles of calm and then hysterical, then calm again. Um, but it took quite a while for them to actually come to me and say, you know, your mum, your mum's been pronounced dead. Um, because the paramedics, you know, they did work for quite a long time. They had the merit team there, um, which is, you know, obviously um highly sort of higher, higher trained paramedics, they're more like doctors really. Um, and they have um the skills to be able to perform certain surgeries um out in the street. Um so they did, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but they opened up the chest. Um, to get directly to the heart so they can massage the heart directly um, to try and, uh, you know, get the, the, the heart go back going and get the blood pumping. Um, but, you know, again, it wasn't successful, um, as we both know. Um, so, yeah, and that was sort of when things started to calm down then and then they sort of, they come to me and they said, look, you know, your mum is gone. Um, I already knew that. Again, it just confirmed what I'd already got in my head. Um Although it was very strange. It was a very, very strange feeling. It's kind of, well, I haven't got a dad. That's very good. My grandparents rolled and I've now lost my mum. What the hell am I doing with my life now? What what am I meant to do? Um, 
and it's that immediate sort of panic of every question possible just goes through your head um but yeah it's it's it really is manic um and then you know they, they sort of came to me that so um you know plain clothes officers turned up at this point and they they come to me and they were like we need to interview you which obviously i knew was coming anyway um and it was midnight at this point um i think midnight was exactly sort of the time that my mum was pronounced dead um and it was a friday night um and they sort of said look we need to interview you but we could do it in the morning and i went i'm not doing it in the morning i'm doing it now um because i had everything in my head i knew i knew i knew what i saw and i just wanted to get it out because if i forgot any little detail between now and the interview in the morning um you know i, I would never have forgiven myself really um so yeah, I was like, take me now. So I never got home actually till about three or four in the morning. Um, when I say home, I mean my nan and granddad's. I didn't want to go there. Um, I don't know why. I think it was guilt. I think it was survivor's guilt, really. Um, well, why am I still alive and mum's not? Um, and not quite being, I couldn't deal with my own emotions at that point. So not being able to deal with my emotions, I certainly couldn't deal with their emotions. Um, you know, they'd had someone come and knock on their door at one o'clock in the morning going, sorry, there's been an accident. You know, that is every parent, every person's worst nightmare. Sorry, there's been an accident. Your your child or your family member's not coming home. Um, you know, and for them that happened. It's like you said earlier, you don't think that's ever going to happen to you. It happens in movies and TV shows. That doesn't happen in real life. Or so you think until it happens. Um, Only this wasn't an accident, was it? This was an intentional, purposeful, premeditated murder. Yeah, yeah, certainly so. You know, it's, again, like you said earlier, you don't expect that to happen. You don't think that's ever, someone ever has the capacity that you know to do that. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a big shock to everyone. But I got home and, like, obviously didn't sleep. Um, none of us did. Um, fortunately, my uncle was staying over, actually, at my nan and grandma, so there was, you know, another person here at the time. Um, so, yeah, I... I went and did my interview I told them everything I possibly could I think I talked for about three hours waffled on um which as you're finding out now is pretty normal for me um and yeah that's sort of how, how the night went they took my clothes for evidence and um <laughs> I had to that was odd it was quite interesting at the same time seeing how it all works but you know you don't ever want it to be for that reason um but as my mum always taught me, I try and take the positive out of everything. And you now I learned how things work. And that was a positive out of that night. I, I learned how things work when someone gets killed. And that to me, you know, that's a life lesson. You know, so yeah, we were sort of delivered home and left to the hands of, yeah, left to the hands of Nan and Grand at that point um, and left to just mull things over. Um, we didn't really find out a whole lot until we saw the press the next morning. Um, I didn't, they, the police told me they had a man in custody. Um, however, I didn't actually know he was in hospital. Um, he'd gone home and tried to shoot himself and been unsuccessful and just ended up um, essentially um, bluntly blowing his face off. Um, and they obviously had to take him to hospital. Um, and yeah, that's where he stayed for 10 months before we could come out and actually be arrested again um as you know with um you know there's only a certain amount of time you can hold someone in custody um so we had to wait um which was an excruciating period of time knowing he was in hospital getting five-star treatment um you know it's it's not 
for myself, I understood, you know, I understood he had to go through it and I was quite happy with that. But for my nan and granddad, that was horrific. You know, he's just killed their daughter, their only daughter. And he's now getting five-star treatment in hospital, you know, which for them, it's not nice. Um, yeah, so he was arrested eventually. 18 months later, we managed to get him to court. Um, it was a long battle. Um, he was remanded after he came out of prison, uh, not prison, out of hospital, um, thank goodness, um, because if he was on bail, it would just just been horrific. Um, but fortunately, he was remanded. Um, yeah, so he was charged with murder. Um, he did get 31 years, and that was because of the hard work of the police. There was a lot of evidence in the case. Um, unfortunately, the bad character application which would um mean that his previous conviction was sort of aired in court and that was denied so we were still we were going into the case um without the jury knowing that he had done it before which was a major concern um considering he was trying to claim it was an accidental murder um and you know accidental death really he said that um you know he just wanted to talk to my mum and he wanted to scare her into having a conversation and all sorts of daft things, really. But he didn't even say it um, because of his injuries. He can't speak. Um, he can't eat. Uh, he's in a wheelchair. Um, he had to have an in, um, intermediary with him. So he'd type it out and she would read it, um, which, as you can imagine, in court proceedings was quite, um, quite difficult, very slow. And when he didn't like a question, um, he would, or he was trying to play to the jury, he would type incredibly slowly. Um, and then if he didn't like the question that was being asked and he was angry about it, he would type very fast. Um, and it was quite obvious that he was trying to play up, oh, I can't type, I'm very ill, you know, because that was part of his defence, you know, or that, you know, he was hoping that his injuries would get him off, really. Um, and that the jury would look at him and go, I feel so sorry. I call it himpathy, that at the point of accountability, they want the poor me syndrome, the himpathy that people then feel sorry for them, rather than the fact that he brutally murdered your mum and it should be about her and not about him. But the fact he didn't take any accountability for it speaks volumes that he's still trying to control, even in the state that he's in, he's still trying to control through the typing and the different mechanisms either slow or fast and he's still making it about him yeah definitely um i mean fortunately um he i'd had a conversation with him the night that my mum was killed um just after he'd showed up at the pub um my mum had called me and said can you actually speak to him because he was threatening to burn our stuff and all sorts of silly things um so i phoned him and i said to my friend i don't know why i just knew i needed to record it i said just record this conversation because i really just have a feeling it's gonna i'm gonna need it um because it, even if nothing came of it I, at least i could show it to the the uh, police's evidence to say, well, he's just done this to me. Um, and yeah, he was very nasty to me over the phone. And that was the only piece of evidence they had in the whole trial of what his voice sounded like. Um, and it really did speak volumes to the jury because obviously they had no, when someone's reading something off a piece of paper or off the, the, um, the tablet thing he was typing on, she doesn't know the tone how he means it and, and what his voice sounds like, how intimidating he is. So for the jury to actually be able to then hear his voice, um, you know, 
really, really made a difference to the case um, and really sort of showed um, what he was like. But I was offered, um, I had to go in and give evidence. I was 15 at this point. Um, Obviously, I was called as a witness. So the listeners know you were actually 14 at the time that this happened, weren't you? And Yes. So you were still very young and you gave evidence when you were 15 and you had to stand there or you sat there, you gave evidence and you didn't request the screen. You wanted to see him and you wanted him to be able to see you. Tell us a little bit about that because that's incredible, Georgia. Yeah. So, um, I mean, our barrister said um, I could kind of choose really where I wanted to go in the list of witnesses um, as such, but I was hell-bent on being in the gallery every day to watch. Um, you know, I, I wanted to know everything that was coming out and what was what was going on and what was being said, um, just so that if anyone ever asked me a question or anything came out, because obviously the press were in there, if anything came out, I could go, well, actually, that wasn't said, or actually, actually, yeah, that was said. Um, you know, it was for protection of my 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 own and my mum's dignity, really, um, especially to those that those people that we knew um i was very aware of everything that sort of went on there wasn't anything that came out in court that was actually a shock to me that i didn't know about um there may have been just the odd text message here and there but it was all it was was just you know it was all things i knew anyway um or sort of insignificant things really to know um so i i felt i was quite happy that i didn't <laughs> i didn't uh, have any nasty surprises um but yeah my barrister said you can you can kind of go where you want really in the list of witnesses um and i went oh, i want to go first because i want to go in the gallery and he was like are you sure i was like yes please i'm going first i'm going in the gallery every day and i will be staying for the duration of the trial uh, and i won't be having screens the police had tried to convince me to have screens they'd made me fill out an application to have screens um you know and they were like, you, you just you just fill out the application because you might get there on the day and you might want screens. I went, I will not be having screens. The whole time I was just hell-bent on not having screens because I'd never faced this man. As I said earlier, I'd never even asked him a question, a simple question. So to me, if I went in with screens, that would just show he won. That was my mentality in the situation. I wanted to go in, stand there, give the evidence and be the person to put him behind bars and, you know, to really hold him accountable for his actions and to, to, to stand there and him look at me and me look at him and just be like, you haven't broken me. You may have taken my mum, but you haven't taken my life. That's truly amazing. I mean, you went through so much and I didn't comment as you were telling the story about what happened that night because you were in flow and I wanted to respect what you had to say, but it is so traumatic what you went through and you just went into immediate survival mode and questioning him of why he did that to your mum, trying to protect your mum, trying to call the police. You did everything right. And I think that moment when the police officer said that had you not have gotten out the car at that time, you most likely would have been either seriously harmed or killed. And... In essence, you saved your own life, you tried to save your mum's life, and then to stand in court and want to be the person who stares him down and refuse to be a victim at his hands and to be the person who holds him to account, both for your mum and for you. I mean, that's just incredible. You you just blow me away. Literally, it's mind-blowing to me just every time you speak about what you've gone through and how you've turned it into being a survivor 
and that you're not going to allow someone to make you passive in this process and even protecting yours and your mum's dignity by listening to everything when it's so hard. It's your mum. It's not talking about another case or another person. It's your mum and you sat there and you listened and you refused to be intimidated by him. And I just find it's just so admirable, Georgia. I can't find the words to express my admiration you. for you. And you should really hold on to those things because it's incredible what you went through in the years run up to that happening to your mom, to him killing her, and then to go through the court process as well and be so strong. It, it just takes a huge amount of mental fortitude to do that. And you did it. You did it. You stood in court. You gave your evidence. The fact that you recorded a conversation was very clear evidence of who he really was. Because when they sit in court, when the abuser or the perpetrator, the offender, the defendant sits in court, they all put on their best face, of course. They try and manipulate. They try and control, particularly when they're so coercively controlling. And the whole poor me, look at me. You showed the side to him of who he really was and what you and your mum had to experience on a daily basis. And I have no doubt that was a huge and very important and significant piece of evidence that it was down to you. You collected it and you were the one that presented it to the police. And that was very important because of what his defence was. You showed a very different side to him. And, you know, I can't say enough incredible things about you and just how you have managed yourself throughout all of this. And I know it's been hugely traumatic. And when people hear you talk, you're so eloquent and you're so together. But I know it's had a very serious impact on you as well, because it does. Trauma resides in our body. Um, and I will always give you space to talk and a platform. And of course, we'll always be here as you have many good people around you who are there to support you in the good days and the bad days because it is your mum. And I think what you've done has been so incredible and just so in inspiring. It really is. Thank you. Um, I'm not very good at taking compliments. <laughs> Many people know that. But um, yeah, no, I do appreciate that. And honestly, full credit to my mum, because she's the one who brought me up to be very resilient. Like I said, she's the one who taught me to look for the positive and everything. While we were at court, the positive was I learned how court works. I learned how trials work. And, you know, I... I was very interested in law. I still am interested in law. Um, you know, I have the opportunity to go and do work experience with my barrister, you know, I, and I've, earned, I've got so many opportunities from that. I learned how the police work really, um, you know, and, and how their sort of system works. I learned how evidence is, is processed and all that kind of thing. So, you know, I've learned a hell of a lot and, um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot from court as well, how to handle myself, um, you know, and how to, um, continue to put on a brave face even when something you're hearing isn't particularly what you want to be hearing um you know a lot of nasty things come out in court um as it, you know well the whole thing comes out in court whether you want something to come out or not it does um and it wasn't it was more the nothing really came out bad about mum because she didn't do anything bad but um you know his sort of lies that were coming out here, especially when he was on the stand um that was really um quite difficult to hear at times um because of you know a lot of it was a complete fallacy that he was making up 
And I think, you know, you saying that all these things came out at court, but we both know that his previous history did not come out at court. And too often the victim is put on trial and all these terrible things come out about her. But his history was only told to the court and told to everybody after he was convicted. And I think that that is a very big problem in the system, which is why you and I are working very hard to ensure that the histories are joined up, because everyone in that court should have known that this wasn't accidental, that he had broken into his ex-wife's house, he had stalked her, he'd threatened to kill her, surgical gloves, a knife, he meant business, and he was a dangerous man. And for them to know that after the trial, when things could have gone very wrong, actually, you know, fortunately, things did go right, but I have worked on cases where it doesn't. And why should you have to fight so hard for the truth when actually his truth should have been readily available? And I don't know all the legal arguments around that, but I think it is hugely problematic when serial perpetrators' histories are not made available to the court so that they can make a decision based on all the information to hand and not just what is heavily filtered, particularly when it comes to dangerous men who terrify and terrorise women, that is unacceptable. And people should be made aware of their histories. And that's why we're pushing so hard for the, the serial perpetrators to go on a register so that they're treated just like sex offenders are and terrorists, and that it's in the public's interest and it's in the court's interest to know about those things. Because women and women's lives and children's lives are at risk, as we've heard from your terrifying and absolutely, you know, heart in my throat, listening to you describe a night of just sheer terror and all the run up to it. It wasn't just about one night. That's not how you got there. You got there through the drip, drip, drip over many years that unfortunately people weren't paying attention to. But there were multiple points of intervention and prevention here. And I you know, find it admirable that you say that you love to learn things, but I don't want you or another child to learn about the court process because your mother has been murdered. I want you to learn about that process because you have an interest, not because you've lived it and you've experienced it. But what I do know about you, Georgia, is that you will go on to do amazing things and you're already doing amazing things. And I know that you turn things into a positive and that's one of your coping mechanisms. But no child should have to experience what you did. No child, not here, not in the UK, not in America, not anywhere in the world should a child have to experience what you did. Questions should have been asked. The police officer had a duty of care to you and a duty of care to your mum. And there were multiple points where things could have been actually turned around and he could have been held to account for his behaviour. And it's unacceptable that he wasn't. And the learning must be promulgated, not just in that police force, not just West Mercia and Staffordshire, but all across the country and all across the world. We must be proactive when it comes to women and children's lives. We must be proactive using the dash and we must be proactive about joining up the history of these dangerous and violent men and making them visible and accountable. You made him accountable in court. Why didn't someone else make him accountable before you got to that night where he has a gun and he kills your mom. That's the question we should all be asking ourselves, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's something I push for greatly as education. I, I've just finished doing um, a training program with over 100 schools in my local area and um, telling my story um, and helping to deliver the training program um, to help them 
put domestic abuse into their curriculum properly. Um, I think half the problem um, I've always found is that when you do learn things at school, they are actually very sugar-coated. And, you know, schools quite often won't admit it, um, but they do sort of hide the truth, really. Um, and if you are taught about healthy relationships, I mean, it's changed even since I was at school and that was only a couple of years ago, you know, learning about domestic abuse. Yeah. So, you know, it's got to be, it's a mandatory thing now on the curriculum that uh, it has to be taught. And that for me is a great relief. However, I know the work's still not done. We have to be putting in the effective training. Um, and it's all about teachers knowing how to, to teach the children um, and making sure that the content is correct um, and that it's not, like I said, sugar-coated. Because I went to an all-girls school. There was 500, 500 in that school. You know, if you look at the statistics, a lot of girls in that school are going to face domestic abuse at some point in their life. Be that at home, they may have already experienced it, or, you know, in their own relationships, um, you know, in the coming future. And it's scary to think about how many are going to experience it, yet nothing is being done by the school. And if you are being taught about it, it's oh it might happen to you but it probably won't so don't worry you know there isn't that girls this is dangerous this most likely will happen to you so you've got to find out how you've got to know how to stop it before it does you know there's there's no sense of urgency one in three girls and women will experience domestic abuse in their lifetime and i i actually believe georgia it's much higher than that because there are so many girls and women like you said who don't a, see it as abuse, but B, they keep the secret because they're too fearful to share. And I would want to make sure, you talked about an all-girls school, which I went to an all-girls school, um, but I would want to make sure that it's taught in boys' schools as well. And boys are the answer to the problem because it's only really boys and men who can change this. And it's not for us women and girls to fix violent men or to try and survive violent men. And I feel really strongly about that, that the problem, it's a man's issue and it's men and boys who must lead it and must create the change. Yeah, I mean, I've had many a conversation with people who I never would have expected to say this, but they always go, why doesn't she just leave? No, why doesn't he stop abusing her? Why are we not saying, well, why doesn't he just stop his behaviour? Why is it always, why doesn't she just leave if she doesn't like it? It's not, that is not the question we should be asking here, you know, and often we find it in many different topics in life. Why is this? Why is that? When actually we should be saying, well, why aren't we holding holding them accountable for their own actions? Um, you know, and it is it's something I really care about. Um, and, you know, I spoke to a friend of mine who, uh, in my town, there's a boys' school and a girls' school. Um, and, you know, they had an assembly about domestic abuse at the boys' school. And I spoke to my friend about it afterwards, and he he said they just treated it like a joke, really. Not so much a joke, but it wasn't very serious. It was just like, don't hit your girlfriends, boys. Kind of, you know, very blasé, you know, not really treating it as a proper issue. Um, I think half problem is as well, even now, still, most people perceive domestic abuse as punches, as black eyes, as dark sunglasses, you know, all the time to hide it, lots of makeup. You know, it's all the physical things. But And that is why I think so much coercive control goes unnoticed because people think, oh, actually, it's fine. It's not domestic abuse because they're not hitting me.
Absolutely. And I think, you know, really you've put your finger on one of the key problems that people don't see coercive control, that it's invisible. And it is, I know you describe it as being like carbon monoxide. It's everywhere. I actually describe it as an elaborate spider's web that is very intricate and it's very delicate in the way that it's put to each victim. Every case is idiosyncratic, i.e. it's very unique to each person's individual situation and who they are, i.e. your mum feared divorce. That was the biggest fear for her. She did everything to keep the family and the relationship together for you, for her. He knew that. So that was his manipulator. That was always his threat. And the minute she relinquishes and said, well, I don't care. I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. Then he has to use all these other tactics and he's becomes vengeful, rejected, and then takes it to the, to the next level. And I think we should be teaching young girls and boys about respect, healthy relationships, and that control isn't love. And I think too often people think that control equals love rather than it's red flag behavior. And there's so much red flag behavior. You mentioned financial abuse, economic abuse, using well, I'll put the car in my name, put it under my business, because financially that will make us better off. But actually it means that he maintains control. And oftentimes it's repackaged as I'm helping you. And that's why it can be quite difficult. It becomes invisible. And I think the skilled abuser, like Hooper, as you described, they render the abuse invisible to everybody. And that's why it's so hard for women and girls and, and to children for them to put their finger on this is it. This is what it looks like. And that's what we need to be talking about in schools, on podcasts, in TV shows like Dirty John to make it clear that it's not about physically hitting someone alone. Your mum would never have dated him if he had hit her on the second date. It's about, again, the elaborate spider's web that lures someone in and becomes much more intricate and sophisticated. So we've still got a long way to go, but I, I have hope with young women like you speaking out you know, and many others. And I really appreciate and value you, Georgia, and your time. And I know we've been talking for some time now and uh, you've shared so much. And I really just want to thank you for sharing so much and for being so open and honest and clear about what happened and for sharing this with me and, and my listeners, because I know there'll be someone listening that you have described them and you've described what they're living in and living with and it will create change. I know many of my listeners, they contact me and over the years hearing me on Real Crime Profile, crime analysts, when you hear someone in your ears, it's a very intimate thing. And some who aren't ready to leave today will be ready in six months time. And so we can help educate people. We can hold their hand through that process, give them the information of what they need to do to leave safely. And I appreciate you sharing your beautiful, wonderful mother, Cheryl Gabriel Hooper, who's no longer here to tell her story, but thank goodness she raised such a strong and incredible daughter who's carrying on the legacy. And I know that for her, legacy was important. That's why she was helping a young girl in another country. And that's part of her legacy too. So I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your story, what happened. And I know that it will help many others. So thank you. You're very welcome. I, you know, it really is an honour to come on, on to something like this and to be able to use your platform to share my story. Um, and, you know, many, many people will agree with me. You know, it 
thank you for everything you've done. I mean, we would never have got the serial perpetrator register through without your hard work and so many different things that you do, you know, and not just in the UK, not just in America, you know, you're now in Australia, um, you know, and you really are moving mountains. And it's really, it really is a, a honour to be part of that. You know, like I said at the start, I'm just a 17 year old from rural Shropshire, you know, um, and getting to work with someone like yourself really is just a, it blows my mind. <laughs> well, you inspire me and you fire me up. And part of changing the world and creating the register and for serial perpetrators to be identified, assessed and managed, it's part of your mum's legacy and your legacy. And we've still got some way to go. We've got to keep pushing government to accept the amendment. Um, hopefully that will happen. We know that a super database is on its way and that's part of what we've been pushing for, but we want to make sure there's proactive management. It's not just about a database, it's about a police officer turning up, asking the dash questions and then checking his history and putting the focus on him. Not about what your mum did or didn't do, it's about what the perpetrator's doing and how we close him down, that accountability and visibility. So we're going to keep pushing, Georgia, and I know I can count on you to be a big part of that. So I'll ask you if there's anything else that you wanted to share that you haven't. Is there anything else that we've missed? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I mean, the only thing I can say really is, you know, it's quite easy for me to sit here and, you know, retell my story. And I'm so used to doing it now. I've only been doing this two years, you know, compared to a lot of other people, that's not very long. Um, But you do get very used to just telling the same story. And it can be quite easy to put it out there with very little emotion um, and to be, it, to become very rehearsed almost. Um, and, you know, I have to add, it is not easy. It really isn't easy. I, I, I do sit here and I do make it sound easy. And all my friends say, how did you do it? I mean, my mum was killed on the Friday night. I was back in school Monday morning. Everyone thinks I'm mad for that. But that was my routine. And I just, I knew that my mum would be turning in her grave if I was sat doing nothing with my life she worked so hard to put me in private school she worked so hard to give me the best of everything that she possibly could so why would I throw that away you know and everyone deals with grief differently my way of dealing with it with it was to get up and carry on and you know I I'm a Christian um and I very narrowly escaped getting killed in the car there's a reason I'm here and I have a story and I have an ability to share my story. Um, and I know that my story and my mum's story can change someone, you know, one person. If it changes one person's life, that for me means my mum didn't die from nothing and anything else is a bonus. You know, so I knew straight off all I wanted to do. I was desperate trying to get into it for so long, really. You know, but I had to wait until trial was over. All I wanted to do was share my story and to do things like this and to, you know, be able to help other people with my experience. Um, but because of not being able to go to trial, we couldn't. I couldn't start until after that was all done and dusted. Um, I think I, d- I did forget to mention as well. Um, you know, he got thirty-one years minimum. Um, we were expecting. 15 20 years um so it was absolutely it was a shock really to get 31 um and you know the jurors at the end when they found out his previous conviction 
their their jaws just all hit the floor and I think there was a massive sense of relief for all of them knowing yeah we made the right decision I mean the case was fairly cut and dry anyway but for them that's just that reinforcement of yeah we've made the right decision here this you know this man deserves to be behind bars um so yeah and I accidentally fell into it um I accidentally read Rachel's book. Um, I I didn't even know what it was. I just found it on Amazon one day. Um, and I was looking at books to help because I, I wanted to, you know, find out about other people who'd been through a similar thing. I know I wasn't the only one. Um, I didn't at that point know just how, you know, rampant it was um, and how, you know, how severe it was, um, especially in the UK. Um and yeah, I found her book and accidentally <laughs> I got in touch with her through, you know, because I found her Facebook page um, and I found that she posted like like yourself. She'd read about my mum's case at the time and she posted um, sort of a day or two after my mum was killed, just saying, oh, you know, again, another horrific case. Um, and I decided to message her. And that's how I ended up doing um, sentence to domestic abuse. And that's how obviously we met. Um, but again, it was just an accident. And then my nan had an accident at as you probably know um she fell on stairs which meant we had to stay with Rachel for two weeks um and in that time I got to, I that was when I started uh that's when I joined Safe Lives as a pioneer um you know I got to go to Crime Watch and go on the set and while well, Rachel did an interview got to meet Rav you know that's what opened up many opportunities too and it's all just been a bit of a chain reaction really of just that one amazon search of books to help me and i've landed up here um you know and i i think if that's not face i don't know what is <laughs> yes well i don't think it's an accident I, I think it was all meant to be and i know when you found rachel rachel messaged me to say that she was talking with you and isn't it interesting how things come full circle and how things get joined up sometimes and most oftentimes for the right reasons. And that's the power and the energy of voices coming together and us uniting and making sure that people know this is not okay and that you don't have to put up with it and you don't have to deal with it. And like you said, you want your mum's murder not to be in vain. You want people to learn. And I'm more than happy to do everything that I can to ensure that everyone knows about your mum's case. As you know, it's in my training, in all my training sessions, so people do hear about you um, and your mum, Cheryl, and that's really important and that we keep ensuring that we learn lessons and we learn them effectively and hold perpetrators to account. And Rachel feels very strongly about that too. So I want to, I think that's a very positive note to end on. And I want to thank you for your time. And I know we've still got, we've still got work to do together. And, uh, you know, I know that you come with the, with the way you talk about things, you do sound very strong. And I know that this does have a very serious impact on you, um, on a, on a day to day basis. And post traumatic stress disorder is very real for, for victims and survivors. So perhaps we'll talk about that another time because again, it does have an impact on our, on us, on our day to day. And it's not easy. And I love the fact that you think about your mum and the legacy that she wanted to leave, which was you having the best education. So you didn't want to miss school, but it's also important that you take time for you. And that's, 
what I keep saying that when you're not sleeping and well, we'll talk about it another time, but I know that you're very <laughs> conscious that you want your mum to be proud of you. And I know that she will be smiling down and incredibly proud that you are talking to so many people trying to change the world because of what happened. So, so thank you, Georgia. We will no doubt speak again on Crime Analyst and uh, it's been wonderful talking with you. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Again, it really is an honour. It's it's a shock. <laughs> it, yeah, you know, it was a big thing when you asked me to do it and, you know, I wasn't going to say no. Um, you know, I practically snapped your hand off. So, you know, it really is, it really is an honour um, to to be a part of this and to, to know you. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. Well, that's it's my pleasure entirely. So thank you so much, my, my lovely. Oh, my goodness. Georgia is truly amazing. Being able to articulate so clearly and eloquently what happened to her mum and the murder itself. And now also what we need to change. So many of you have messaged me about Georgia, saying how impressed you are by her. And please keep your messages coming. It's really empowering for Georgia to read them, and I do pass them on. And we must remember, she's only 17 years old, but she really appreciates your support and kind words. We have a lot to do before women and children are safe, and women and children deserve to be safe, and we all have a role to play. I have much more to say about this in future episodes, and for now I want you to remember and honour Cheryl Gabriel Hooper, whose life was brutally and violently ended by a man, Andrew Hooper, who thought it was his entitled right to kill her. Hashtag her name was Cheryl Gabriel Hooper. Now I know this series has not been easy listening, and I make no apology for that. These real and honest conversations, my campaign and my analysis, are unfortunately urgently needed, and I know they are life-saving for so many. Please take good care of yourself. And I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell next week. Until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.